Hi, and welcome to Match Cut, the movie podcast where we take two movies with the exact same rating on IMDb and break that tie. My name is Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. Hello, and we're also joined by our friend and occasional co-host, Kurt. Hey. Hey. Hello. So... This week we watched two movies that show the classic battle between cops and robbers, good guys and bad guys, two sides of the law, and we want to talk a little bit about how those conflicts show up in uh, film and movies, but before we get to that, if you've got a movie that you think we need to check out, or an idea for a future episode, you can tell us at matchcutpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at matchcut. So, for today, we got... A, a representation of a of a conflict that we've known about like since we played cops and robbers as kids or at least I did or it's it's something that we all inherently know but it it kind of changes its portrayal over time where in sort of these noir movies there's this you know there's a a certain glorification of the you know salt of the earth down and dirty pi or detective where you know now you kind of have movies like the fast and furious where you're following a group of criminals who are glorified we're family <laughs> we're family. sorry a family of criminals so <laughs> you know what do you how, how do you guys kind of look at at cops versus criminals in movies I think the the easiest thing to go by is look at the different eras of filmmaking, you know, going back to the 1920s, 30s, 40s, what have you, and the earliest parts of, you know, noir filmmaking, uh, which was, you know, the classic hard-boiled detective gumshoe meeting a femme fatale and all that. And uh, during the time, that time, the Hayes Code was in effect and literally they could not show in gangster films, you know, like White Heat and stuff like that, um, or in detective films, the bad guys winning crime had to be punished. Yeah. And so, uh, famously John Dillinger was leaving the uh, screening of Manhattan melodrama with, uh, Clark Gable, um, where his character, I believe dies at the end and he was shot and killed by the FBI leaving the, the biography theater in Chicago, which is still around. Um, so kind of life, uh, and art, you know, paralleling each other that, you know, you may be a notorious, you know, public enemy number one, but you can't get away with it forever. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Faye Dunaway was also in uh, Bonnie and Clyde, which again has a very similar crime doesn't pay message in the movie and in real life, you know, they were gunned down in a roadside ambush with their car being riddled with, so much fire like you can literally see the the i think that car is on display somewhere and it's insane the amount of rounds that went into it for these people yeah. that were just <laughs> robbing banks i mean they're killing cops too but that's true they were killing cops but like you know gillinger just got shot in the back of the head once and it, it was good yeah i mean yeah i think that i think that car's on display in like the fbi headquarters or an fbi museum somewhere I don't remember exactly. Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar, the Hayes Code was kind of a... I'm not sure how strictly enforced it was. It, was it a guideline? or very, a... It was very strictly enforced. Like, mm. your movie, if it was not code approved, to my knowledge, could not be shown. It was a censorship board, yeah. 100%. And okay. some, of the, some of the principles of that were like, you can't show the defeat of the law, the, 
uh, you know, narcotics, drinking, gambling, pointing a gun or specifically a Tommy gun. And then there was certain like uh, decency guidelines, like you can't show the inside of a thigh, lace lingerie, exposed bosom. And there was no open mouth kissing. Yeah. Hmm. So is this like, since I don't know what this is, I think this may be good, a good conversation to have. Is this a, it's a, it's a, like an MPAA rating before the MPAA was around, right? Well, it wasn't an MPAA rating in the sense that it was a voluntary, like the Hayes code was actually like guidelines that I believe were governmentally um, enforced. It was a censorship board. Why is it called the Hayes Code? Like who? Because the guy it was like Rutherford. It was the guy's name was Hayes. H A Y S, not like H A Z E or anything. Right. I figured H A Y S. Would you know when it came about? It was in the 1920s because uh, gangster films were some of the most popular films at the time. Uh, it was similar to when uh, Prohibition took effect. It was like, oh, the moral degradation of society is caused by this one thing. Yeah. So we will you know, enact laws to counter this one thing that we think is degrading society. Yeah. It was, um, when that one thing just creates more degradation. Yeah. It was applied to motion pictures, um, from 34 to 68. And then Mm -hmm. Will H Hayes, um, was president of the, uh, MPPDA, which is the motion picture producers and distributors of America from 22 to 45. So right around that, that time. And then that organization later became the MPAA. Right, where it became more voluntary and less censorship, where they were literally going and stopping people from making these things. And now it is just the mess that what it is. If you want to know more about the the movie pictures in the MPAA, watch this film is not yet rated. Yeah, Uh, Uh, There's a lot of hypocrisy in it and stupid bullshit. And it still kind of goes on as like a like a de facto censorship because if you get that nc-17 you know adults only whatever rating most movie theaters won't show your film well i think it's i think it's something that like that they're you know enforcing very much like video games where like if you get something that's uh adult rated you know nc double or nc-17 not nc double a rated rated. you're the golden state warriors you can't be shown in a movie (laughs) um but uh if you get you know those strong ratings that the theaters have voluntarily quote unquote Mm -hmm. uh said that we won't show your films at all um and there's very very weird things like they care more about uh not showing sexuality than they care about violence of course mm-hmm. so and so, someone better not say fuck too many times or else <laughs> or else it'll well they're actually relaxing on that a bit like but it's still one i think it's still technically one per movie and it still can be PG13 yeah i think so it's it's one I had heard it also kind of depends on the context. Like if you're talking about like fuck in the sense of like the sexual act is different than just like using it as more of an expletive. Yeah. There's, there's literally parts where they're in uh this film is not yet rated where they're talking about the differences in sex scenes and how one is an R rated and one is an NC 17 rated. And generally speaking, if it's like above torso showing the, the woman, but with covers, it'll be R-rated because it's more, more sensual and more emotional. But if it's like pulled back and is like showing like the, you know, the actual, like not like 
you know, full penetration, like the Always Sunny gang once, but, uh, <laughs> but showing the more act of it. And even it could be like the same intent of the scene. Just one is showing like, here's the warts and all kind of look at it. Uh, that one will be NC-17 rated. Okay. So Interesting. moving back a little bit to the topic. Like yeah. Now, now sure. we have, Sorry. you know, now that we're not so maybe hamstrung by this like morality guideline of don't kill cops or don't, you know, defeat the law. Yeah. Now we yeah. kind of get more movies that show criminals in a, in a more positive light sometimes, maybe not taking into consideration some of the impacts of those actions. Well, I, I think you always, hmm. I think that you're able to show a lot more nuance and things like yeah. a movie like colors wouldn't be possible in the 1930s because the cops are extremely racist, morally bankrupt, but they're cops. It's like you don't get that gray area of both sides suck. And let's look at the human condition of the people that, you know, uh, pursue this as a line of work and maybe find some truth in this. Whereas, you know, back in the day, the cops were, you know, I'm a G man uh, and I'm above reproach and I'm, you know, you know, uh, above the law, but I am the law. And so I'm a good guy and you can trust me. Mm. Like, it was much more blatant propaganda and you still get cop propaganda in films. Like totally. the most recent one that I can think of is end of watch, which while a pretty good film and well done and kind of showing a, a more balanced look at cops, like they're not like great, great people mm-hmm. and they're, they're kind of scummy and, and not the smartest, mm-hmm. but at the end it's just pure propaganda for them. Like, Oh, how hard their job is and all this stuff. It's like, right. Yeah, I don't believe that. <laughs> Especially in this day and age, like if I, you know, what's the last cop movie to come out in the last mm. five years? Hmm, <laughs> that's a good question. What is the last cop movie? Like End of Watch is the only one that's jumping to mind, but there's got to have been other ones that were a similar vein of cop film. Uh, at least, let's be cops. Uh. <laughs> I don't think that counts. There was one called Black and Blue, which came out in 2019, but I've never heard of it. Den of Thieves? Again, I I think that that's also a sign of the times is that you look at the current, you know, political landscape, racial landscape of America and what's going on with the constant uh, conversation with cops need to be reined in from, you know, media and society at large and the pushback from a lot of regressive parts of society is like cops do a hard job and you don't get to tell them what to do. And they're above, you know, suspicion. Like there is just no desire to make a cop film, even if it is like for one reason or the other. Yeah. They're just not marketable. I mean, maybe, maybe it kind of died with that, uh, neighborhood watch movie where, you know, Oh yeah. Right. Where you have the, is it Trayvon Martin Zimmerman incident shooting? Martin. tragedy you know that kind of is like maybe we don't do movies about law enforcement or neighborhood watch or yeah okay so i think den of thieves is the last one that is like a straight cop movie and that was 2018 that had like gerard butler 50 cent and uh ice cubes kid in it was it even it was netflix 
It was a Netflix film? Yeah. Why am I seeing it had a box office of 80.5 million? Well, then, uh, then I guess I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, it could be one of those Netflix oh, things where they put it out. No, the most recent cop film is uh, 13 Bridges. What's 13 Bridges? Oh, with fucking Chadwick Boseman. And it, it's done by um, the Russo brothers with, yeah. uh, with Chinese money. Uh, 21 Bridges. Whatever. Yeah, same. Same thing. Same. The dip. Bridges of Manhattan. The Bridges of Manhattan. And bridges I, over the that river. That like came and went. Like, yeah, I mean, it only did forty nine million in box office, which is budgets was thirteen or thirty three million. So that's an oof. Yeah. Yeah. I think that shows that. I mean, that still proves a point that yeah, like, cop movies are kind of just kind of died. You know. Oh, like the hold up, Bad Boys for Life. I mean, okay. That's that. That nope. That, yep. That fault. Yep. Nope. That's it. That, that kind of that life. is true. That does, but that falls into my the thing of cop propaganda. Like mm-hmm. the reason that's popular is more because oh, it's another Bad Boys, and I want to see Will Smith and Martin Lawrence again, rather yeah. than like Twenty One Bridges, which is trying to be this like really dramatic, serious like oh, you know, cops have like oh, cops dying in the line of duty, and like oh, we got to find the truth and all that like no one really wants that which i guess kind of goes to an overall escapist theme that is happening in life now yeah um, yeah in the well i mean i think i think it's it's a it's a fine line between like actually telling a real story of cops and like pro- cop propaganda because i don't want to say that cops job isn't hard because i'm sure it's fucking super hard however like like i said there is a difference between like the propaganda of of just like like look at how extra hard we can make this we, we can make this job seem or how extra dangerous and how extra like you know patriotic like oh my boys in blue type i would of. also i would also kind of put the um bad boys in the buddy cop genre in a sense yeah it's a comedy yeah. it's a comedy whereas like and so buddy cop movies are separate in my mind from a cop movie same. if that makes sense yeah same so, like, a cop movie is, like, Traffic or, like... Training um, Day. Mm-hmm. Training Day, day in yeah. all honesty, is, like, the de facto early 2000s cop movie. To me, or, Training Day is, like, a good cop movie where it shows that cops, like, the cop's job can be hard, especially if you work in undercover ship. But also that, like, it doesn't, it doesn't make, you know, the cops out to be, like, the 100% good guys fucking, you know, like, I mean, the, shining, the, shining badge on the hill type type yeah. fucking story. I mean, the, the moral quandary in that film is that you have this very, very idealistic young cop who's, like, looking to make a difference, and he's paired with a guy who, like, all intents and purposes on the surface is, like, the right kind of undercover cop, and you realize he's more corrupt than the people he's policing. Yep. Yep. But he has this this uh, self righteous justification for why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah, he believes he's the baddest motherfucker on the block because he's a cop, but also part of this like you know untouchable undercover unit. Right. So how does this compare? How does how do 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 you think that those that what, what we've been talking about compare to anything going on in Chinatown or Heat? Because I'm trying to, I've been trying to think of it, and I honestly can't, I can't see it. I don't see, like I think, I think Heat and Chinatown both do a good job at telling a good cop story. Well, I think the 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 fact that 
you know, cops are ancillary really to the, the, the character study that is heat mm-hmm. and they're kind of antagonistic mm-hmm. and a reason that Jake Geddes is out, is a private detective, even though mm-hmm. it's not shown. But uh, speaking of, I think that's uh, enough on like cops in cinema and crime in cinema. Yeah. You, you certainly don't have to rack your brain quite as hard to like find a movie about criminals. Like if you look at, Knives Out, Joker, Uncut Gems, you know, mm-hmm. The Irishman, The Gentleman. It's just like you got tons of crime movies and crime and criminal movies. Crime. Yeah, I think people like the crime stuff. I mean, I know I do. Yeah. And I think it goes back to, you know, the point that you guys had brought up where it's it's about the escapism and, you know, don't no one want fewer people want to go to the movies to see like the harsh reality of being a cop in today's environment. Right. Well, I just, exactly. I think that there's just probably not a lot of public sympathy for it as much anymore. Yeah. That, I mean, it's like, like making a, it's like making a, oorah fucking like war movie. It's like, no one really, no one really buys into that anymore. I mean, yeah. Like the last one of those was, I mean, um, if we're talking about modern wars, then it's, yeah. Because well, like you got nineteen seventeen, obviously. Lone Survivor, maybe. But even Lone Survivor, yeah, yeah. Oh, newer than that is Twelve Strong. Oh, came out later. Yeah. Uh, like again, there's not a lot of public demand for these stories. Mm-mm. Yeah, and the interesting thing, and I think something we'll get into, is that like, I think Chinatown and Heat like still work in a modern in a modern lens, but we'll talk about it because. This episode's matchup is about strong men, strong women, deception, lies, and crime in beautiful Los Angeles. So slap the bolt release on your car 15, put on your suit with that very distracting vent right down the center seam in the back. Mm-hmm. Take Canyon View Drive over to San Vicente and then make a left and get on the 405 North. And from there, you just get off at Mall Hall and it's time for Chinatown <laughs> versus Heat. <laughs> <laughs> so... What was everyone's experience with these movies uh, before we watched them for the podcast? Uh, honestly, I don't remember the first time that I had watched Heat, and this was the first time for me watching Chinatown, and I watched them both alone. So, yeah, the end. <laughs> uh, the first time I wanted to see Heat was actually that Dane Cook joke. Uh, which one's Cook that? Memory, He's- yeah. It's literally, it's literally like the setup is like, you know, when heat comes on TV and you see these like slick guys robbing a bank, like most guys that look at that will be like, I want to do that. Like, <laughs> oh, I want to see heat now. Uh, and then like mentions and references to it in uh, regards to the uh, North Hollywood shootout mm-hmm. okay. and like the coverage of that after the fact. Yep. Like the fact that a lot of their like mentality came from some of the stuff in heat, apparently. Yeah. Wait, what? Some, it might have even been the TV movie that Heat was based on. Spoiler. It's based on a TV movie that Michael Mann directed and then turned into Heat for the big screen. North Hollywood. Because my, my, my timeline on the North Hollywood shootout is that it's before Heat. It's uh, 1997. Oh, because okay, after Heat then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Gunman Emil Matasarenu and Larry Eugene Phillips robbed a Bank of America wearing heavy body armor and carrying assault rifle. The shootout ended with both gunmen dead. One of them shot 29 times. It was later revealed that the gunman had cited heat as an influence for the robbery. Bada bing, bada boom. And also, 
uh, in looking up stuff for this movie, there was a copycat crime in uh, Colombia where 18 masked robbers drove a bus into an armored van and stole 350000 in cash, which obviously mirrors the robbery and heat. So, yeah. huge, wow. huge cultural influence for I mean, better or worse. Yeah. Um, and Chinatown, I, uh, it's one of my mother's favorite movies. So watched it a few times on TV with them and then, uh, DVD other times. Yeah. Nice. Heat. I had definitely seen several times on like HBO, especially like in when I was probably like, you know, in my mid to late teens, it was like, this is the shit. This is like, this is the realness. Um, Man, I don't want to have any attachments that I can't drop in 30 seconds or less. <laughs> yeah, just figure out what kind of life that leads you down. <laughs> um, but Chinatown, I had not seen or like really even heard of before watching it for this movie. I was I was what? very blind going into this. So uh, this weekend, my stepdad and I were watch were you know gonna sit down and watch a movie, and I'm just like, well, I got to watch Chinatown for the podcast. He's like, great, I got it on DVD. Let's go. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so, yeah, I I was surprised, especially like seeing the opening credits. It's like, oh, it's got Jack Nicholson in it and Faye Dunaway and directed by Roman. Pol like, how had I not heard of this movie before in any uh, detail? Not a boomer. <laughs> I I mean, I guess so. <laughs> but uh, you know what? I forgot to do for this podcast was figure out what hmm. the bacon number is. Oh snap! So, can we do it right now? Yeah, I'll do a I'll do a Robert De Niro and a Jack Nicholson. I mean, okay. <laughs> uh, they were in the last tycoon together. The last tycoon. Oh, I don't. So I don't it's know separated by one. Yes, one movie. It what? was the last tycoon, based on the book by F. Scott Fitzgerald, made in 1976. Okay. So it was made two years after this. Interesting. Yeah. After Chinatown, that is. Yeah. Oh, apparently there's a there's a remake coming out or on Amazon original that I'm looking at. For a TV show, yeah, which is just like, why? Yeah. There's no point. Just keep whoring out old properties that some people have <laughs> some attachment to rather than be original. Apparently it was a huge box office bomb. Its budget was $5.5 5 and its box office was one point eight. so... You're talking about Ooh, the, the last, last tycoon. tycoon, yeah, yeah. That has some good ass actors in it. My God, yeah. So did Cats, but hey, you know, here we are. Yes, well, but Cats didn't need to be, you know, Chinatown didn't need to be patched in the theaters with yeah. better graphics. Yeah. Uh, so these Houston's in it. <laughs> these movies are rated an excellent eight point two on IMDb, but one of them must be better than the other. Let's find out right after this break. Mm -hmm. See you on the other side. Chinatown is a 1974 movie written by Robert Town and directed by Roman Polanski, starring Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, John Huston, and Perry Lopez. Robert Town is best known for this film, Days of Thunder, Mission Impossible, and Mission Impossible 2. Director Roman Polanski is best known for being a pedophile and rapist that Hollywood loves. Also Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> 
Former LAPD detective Jake Geddes has a nice life as a successful, albeit sleazy, private investigator. When he is asked by Evan Mul- Eve- Evelyn Mulray, blah, when he is asked by Evelyn Mulray to follow her husband to find evidence of an affair, Jake does his job. But things are never what they seem, and soon Jake finds himself wrapped up in a conspiracy stretching to the highest levels of power in LA. I like the fantastic. Uh, I like the Polanski bit there. <laughs> Yeah, um, I was surprised to see an opening credits scroll in this movie. I thought seventy four we were we're done with all that, but I guess not. I mean, you, this movie is definitely trying to be like the penultimate of noir films. Yeah, while yeah. being like it's a massive send up to the genre. I mean, you have John Huston who directed many of those and was a, a, a accomplished director in his own day. Um, as your yeah. bad guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he directed uh, the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, so a very famous, yeah. you know, man of the era, and you cast him as, you know, an antagonistic character in this. Um, it's also a subversion of a lot of those, you know, the hard-boiled gumshoe detectives because Jack Nicholson's J.J. Geddes is kind of a punk who gets his ass beat in every single fight. Yeah, spends like mm-hmm. over half the movie with a gigantic bandage over his face. <laughs> Which is one of the things that this movie is like, man, that was a bold decision because in 74, Jack Nicholson was like the hottest actor in Hollywood. Yeah. And you put him in a bandage. Mm-hmm. Bold. Yeah. Was this Polanski's, I mean... It's his second or third film. That's that's insane. Yeah. Yeah, Jack Nicholson had kind of been coming up through uh was it Easy Rider yeah. and then uh mm-hmm. Carnal Knowledge, was that his other big uh That's so, I mean that's one of them. I just don't know the the time frame that I, we're talking about. I was gonna about. say uh, like, uh, if only there was some was... website that <laughs> had like someone's whole filmography listed chronologically. That'd be crazy. 71 is carnal knowledge. So yeah, you put the, the hottest actor in Hollywood covering half his face in an obnoxious bandage, and then you have him get beat up all the time. It, uh, something It reminds me later of uh, Miller's Crossing from uh, the, the Coen brothers with Gabriel Byrne set up as a very similar character of this like fixer for a crime family. And every scene he that has a fight, he gets beat up in. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, Jack Nicholson's very, def- very like commanding, and and you know the the center of every scene he's in. But like for me, especially like never having seen this, not knowing what to expect, like when he's in that opening scene, just kind of like all the way back in his chair, just kind of like lazily letting the you know, very trail of a cigarette smoke come out of his mouth. Does he like tells that guy to like, let go of the Venetian blinds. Like mm-hmm. I that, just had him install. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, it's a very, yeah. Commanding presence where it's just like, mm-hmm. this, this is the guy to pay attention to that fucking story that he tells, um, <laughs> the, 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 from the barbershop. Yeah. Oh, that was such a good, like just his, his acting, like it's like all of the expressions on his face were just like, oh man, like you couldn't help but watch that scene. 
Well, and then he's digging his own grave because you know people mm-hmm. don't don't yeah hey li- li- listen you, you need to pay attention here yeah <laughs> you gotta um, you gotta hear this joke I heard in the barber shop <laughs> yeah. but uh, I really like that scene before the joke is being told where he's like confronting this guy who's like a mortgage person at a bank and he's like mm-hmm. giving JJ Gitz uh, Gettys. Uh, shit for you know oh being a private investigator and you know exposing affairs it's like screw you man how many people's houses have you taken yep (laughs) it's like and you see that he's actually he's actually not like a horrible person like morally repugnant like it's his job and he kind of doesn't like it but he's good at it Mm -hmm. and he's just like you know people are people and they're shitty that whole thing where uh with uh the guy, the actor who played Polly, I can't remember his character's name. Um, mm. In this, where he he tells him, you know, like I'm not going to take your last dollar. That's not right. I'm just, you know, showing you what it is, and like here's the information that you wanted. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but he calls in that favor, but like, yeah, he he lets the guy off the hook. Like he's not insane. He's not bad in at least as far as this system goes yeah cancels his debt and offers him like money on top of that right although whether or not he paid out after the climax of the film remains to be (laughs) yeah he never really got the job done but um another another thing that like instantly stood out for me in this movie is like how much L.A. Noir like borrows from this movie? Yeah, oh yeah, the, the the overture of this movie is almost like the same as the menu music. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. um, the uh huh. Yeah. For those who aren't like, familiar, what? L.A. Noir is a like detective noir video game that came out in like a uh, twenty twelve or something. Yeah, twenty eleven. Yeah, a little earlier maybe. Yeah, I think it was before. It was after Red Dead Redemption. Yeah, so it was it was 2011. I'm I'm like a 99 on that. Yeah. Okay. But LA based detective noir that just like those like small piano kind of stings or like yeah the, four or note like the runs. horns. Like the... Yeah. Very very much borrowed or a tribute to this film. And like um, even the. Like obviously the styling because it's a similar-ish enough time. Yeah, you're only separating it by like maybe a little over a decade timeline-wise. And like, and like same with like the I I I guess like I got the same feel of like the story arc is a bit of the same where you're like you're piecing the you're like you're you're piecing small puzzles puzzles together that then lead to like solving a bigger puzzle. Well, I mean, if we're if we're going to talk about Ellie Noir for a moment, it, especially the arson desk mm-hmm. in that one is very much like a culmination of the the grand conspiracy and all that, and going yeah. to the higher highest echelons of power and yada yada mm-hmm. yada. Dealing with yeah. like, yeah, you, you you're dealing with small time things that end up being being connected to these these big time fucking things, big time yeah. people, organizations, whatever. But, like, the thing that's really interesting about this movie is, honestly, how little the conspiracy matters. Like, yeah, no it's, it's, well, it's the main drive of him searching for it, but, like, his actions cause no change. And, in fact, yeah, his interference with this conspiracy probably was worse off for everyone involved. 
Uh, I mean, yeah, actually. Um, that was a theme that uh, Jack, uh, my housemate and I, uh, we watched the movie together, brought up, is that there are so many points in this film and in Heat where the characters can stop what they're doing and walk away from it and be fine, and they choose mm-hmm. not to. Mm-hmm. And this one, he is given so many outs to not interfere or not behave in the way or Gettys is in the way he is. Or Evelyn uh, Mulray, played by Faye Dunaway, could be more honest with him, more open with him about what is going on and save themselves from a lot of drama and heartache down the line. Mm-hmm. And maybe even her untimely demise. Yeah, which... I mean, that guy didn't have to fucking the the other uh, <laughs> the other cop. Yeah. Or P.I. No, it was a cop, right? No, it was a cop. It was yeah. um, Escobar's partner. Yeah. Partner. He didn't have to, you know, shoot after Escobar did his warning shots. Yeah. It was a heck of a shot, too. It was. A yeah, heck that's of a like shot. a nearly impossible shot. Great shot, kid. One in a million. Um. I I do understand a lot of like JJ uh, Giddy's like desire to follow this all the way down because like I kind of felt it too like watching it mm-hmm. like this movie doesn't really like it never like stops and is like okay let's get some characters together we're gonna put up a cork board we're gonna get the red yarn out and we're gonna like go back and summarize this whole thing it's like no we're just gonna keep moving yeah you're gonna find out when the characters find out and you're mm-hmm. gonna be as you know, along for the ride as they are. And it was definitely like, I almost didn't take notes during this movie. Cause I was just got so engrossed watching it. Like the notes, my notes for this movie are short. <laughs> yeah. Well, every scene is so important. There's, there's not a lot. There's no scenes wasted in no. this mm-hmm. thing. Like everything is building character set up and payoff. And it is one of those things, if you pay some attention, you can fit you can maybe figure things out beforehand. But like when the reveal happens, it's like, of course, okay, you're just you're kind of explaining because it's been moving at such a pace. It's not like you're too dumb to get it. It's like, no, we're really kind of ordering it all for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, What I like about this movie um, in general is it does feel like a time capsule. Like you're transported actually back to (laughs) 1930s LA. Yeah. Which is just become harder and harder to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially like we talked about in once upon a time in Hollywood where, you know, they had to do some editing to like replace building fronts or like Mm -hmm. make the cars on the freeway match. And it's like, what you kind of end up with is this empty freeway. Yeah. I mean, not that the freeways were all that packed, but it's like, using only period cars and all that, like there's not enough to fill the freeway with the number of cars that it would have had roughly at that time. Right. Um, Also other things that you run into that is a lot easier to avoid in the seventies when the thirties is only 40 years removed um, is in once upon a time in Hollywood specifically, there's one or two scenes you can look in the background and it's like, Oh, that's a modern F one fifty I see right there that they didn't catch. <laughs> yeah. It's just parked in a parking lot. It's like it's far enough away that your attention shouldn't be there, but if you look around the frame, you see it. Right. Hmm. Um, you don't get that, at least as far as I can tell in this movie, because everything is so narrow and focused on what it's showing. 
Yeah, and I think it also probably helps that I I wonder how much Hollywood was different by the time in 74 to compared to 37. I mean, yeah, you hadn't really had a huge urban boom in development for, you know, Hollywood. Like, a lot of those places are st- were still standing for the longest time, so it's like it was easier to find those um, period correct locations. Yeah. The other great thing that I like about this, and it, it parallels a similar, uh, you know, modern noir film, <clears throat> L.A. Confidential, and that these events with the water and all that, I believe, is true. Yeah, yeah they are. It's, the, it's creating a a narrative and a, and a drama, but like the actual framing conspiracy actually happened. It's based on uh, William Mulholland, who was like the head of L.A. Power and Water or something, or um, designed the uh, the aqueduct system or something like that. He was like he was he was the one that I mean, and there's also a road now named after him, um, Mulholland Drive. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> Mulholland Drive. Um, he was the one. He like he did something that involved the water supplying L.A. And yeah. and it was like his battle between like mobsters that were funding it and blah 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 yeah. like in the whole system. So yeah, because L.A. basically shouldn't exist. <laughs> it yes. really shouldn't. Yeah, is a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of begging, borrowing, stealing, and creating something out of nothing in a desert. Yes, I mean the L.A. Aqueduct is like this huge just mess of corruption and stuff that <laughs> oh boy i mean wasn't it was it even really re, it wasn't even a big town by the time that like like when we took it over from the mexicans i don't even think it just should it should really shouldn't have ha, have existed at all yeah it it's not in an environment to like support as many people as it has mm-hmm. and here we are, but yet, here I am, I guess I'm still in Southern California. And, but yet it's like, because of that, I think like, because of that combined with how much like is going on in it, like economically, it does lead to these, to these necessary, um, like projects to keep it going and keep it sustained. And then we'll just lead to people like big money getting involved. And so like, that's why this story is good too, I think. Yeah. And the the great thing about it is, yeah, he's figured all this stuff out. And like, you know, the fact that they're, you know, stealing land from farmers by running them off and and buying the land for pennies on the dollar. And Mm -hmm. then they're just they're going to incorporate it and give the water to them uh, with this new viaduct that they just voted on. Like the bad guys have already won him figuring any of this out doesn't matter. It's not going to stop what has already happened. Right. And it doesn't. And uh, the the best scene I think is right before the um, Noah Cross uh, abducts JJ Gettys, and he's saying, and he's laying it all out, and he's saying, "I know you killed, uh, you know Hollis, mm-hmm. uh, and all that." Uh, and he's asked, "Like, how much better can you live? How much better can you eat? Where's it end? You know, like, how much money do you need?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like the what's future. The- and and this is such an arrogant thing. Like, what does the future matter to you? You're like mm-hmm. on your way out. You're super old already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. That's what a what a weirdly like 
pertinent thing still topical yeah. thing still after a certain point the the it doesn't it is not about food it's not about where you live it's about creating a future that you want to see because you've got enough money to do it and you have the influence to do it as well yeah yeah it's like maybe 78 year old men shouldn't have 64 billion dollars <laughs> to just put some money out there or yeah. put some numbers out there hmm. Hmm. is there hmm. there's no, no one you're specifically talking about no though. no i i wouldn't dream that this could ever happen in reality. I'm just more proposing a hypothetical. Yeah, right. you're just you're just practicing a new screenplay that you're doing. I get it. I get it. Billionaire shouldn't exist. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. Hold, hold, hold on. Turn it off. Turn it off. <laughs> um, funny, funny enough, you mentioned that. Uh, I don't know if you caught it, but in JJ's uh, in Jake Getty's office, he has a picture of FDR. That he that that he does. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like 37. This is like this is like almost the peak of FDR's like love and admiration. Oh, definitely. It's it wasn't out of place. It's just funny. It's like I could never see myself putting up a president president's picture in my place of business ever. Yeah. Anymore, it is like a bit like uh... unless the, the, my place of business is a military recruiting office. And it's like <laughs> here's the chain of command at the the the, 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 the these levels. It's like, oh, okay, that's good to know. Yeah, definitely so, some very pertinent messaging still. Totally. And I was actually going to bring up like if I remember correctly, um, in like the slight the slight little bit of research that I did because I kind of wanted to go into this as like you know just like a like a like a newborn child but like if i remember correctly the script was written first and then like they they built the crew around the script do you guys know anything about this i mean usually that's how a script scripts happen scripts you're right but it was but it was you're talking like no one was written with any parts in mind no and like and it seemed like it was a it was like a like a one by one like like town wrote the script and then people started hearing about this script and then joined in as that rather than anymore it's like well we got you know jj abrams is attached to direct this un you know untitled star wars thing right once in on this it's like oh everyone wants in on this it's star yeah. wars not even gonna read the script yeah it's more like it's more like town wrote the script and then and then like through kind of word of mouth he he like he he had jack nicholson um like had him called him farmed it to him and then jack nicholson learned like like told about uh, told people about it and then polanski heard and then so on and so forth like i mean that's maybe things happen okay yeah it's just we we don't hear about uh that from the past because it was a lot more insider like okay this is how a lot of films used to get made is a script would be written. It would go to someone that like either they knew or whatnot, which still happens, but you wouldn't have reports of it every step of the way. Okay. For the most part. Okay. So maybe my, maybe my good talking point was, was, was less so. <laughs> um, definitely. Definitely. One thing I heard about like the script is that Polanski was mostly responsible for changing the ending of the movie. Cause I guess the- in the original script, um, Mul- Evelyn Mulray and her daughter were going to get away. Oof! Oh, so you have you have Polanski, who terrible person aside, <laughs> my daughter, my sister, my daughter, my my yep. sister and my daughter. 
Um, Polanski, who terrible actions aside, had just kind of gone through the Sharon Tate murders mm-hmm. and, you know, may have been feeling a little morose or down in the dumps, mm-hmm. which could have influenced his decision to go for a more like gut wrenching downer of an ending, mm-hmm. which I don't say to detract from it because I think it is a very fitting end and works very well but you know had he not had that personal tragedy in his life like maybe it would have been different and maybe maybe. um the great thing uh about the backstory of the characters in this is aside from the people they're investigating unless they tell you you never find out you know why exactly jake left the da's office and in chinatown what exactly mm-hmm, happened mm-hmm. between him and Escobar that he still yeah. mildly respects Escobar to a degree, especially compared to other things. But like he lived a life and he got out of it because he did something previously, like got involved when he shouldn't have to the point where when someone, when his, uh, when his uh, cadre says, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. That's enough for him to be like, it's Chinatown. Yeah. Yeah. What was going on in Chinatown? (laughs) He got involved in something and bad things happened and his life was not the same after and he couldn't continue on the same way. Yeah. And it's that ending that I kind of like in movies where it's, you know, the, the arc is finished, but there's still enough like open-ended questions that it's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, after I watch the movie, I'm going to go and spend a little time, you know, kind of in my head in this setting, like exploring, you know, what might have happened or stuff. And I, I think that's so you're what... saying you want a sequel uh, 16 years. <laughs> no, later. no, I do not. You sure? <laughs> you sure? <laughs> because there's a sequel called The Two it, Jakes that has this? Jack, Jack Nicholson and Perry Lopez as the two 100%, Jakes. This movie should not have a sequel <laughs> directed by Jack Nicholson, by the way. Oh, so I, I like haven't heard anything about this sequel. I can't imagine it was good though. Apparently, I mean, it, it didn't win its. It didn't get its box office back. So it came out in ninety. Uh, it was probably it probably was too long in the making. Had it been maybe in the eighties, it would have been better received. But I think the story is a little more traditional and a little less. Um, Although it was written by Robert Town, mm-hmm. um, it just wasn't as well done. Like this is a lightning in a bottle situation, which I think is what you're kind of getting from. We're, we're trying to get at Kurt is that when Jack Nicholson got this script, he wanted to do this. Everyone involved wanted to be part of this. Yeah. Whereas, oh, I want to be part of it because it's a Polanski film. It's like, no, I want to be part of it because the story is good this and point. because these other people are in it. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think of the whole love affair situation going on with Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway? Yeah. I thought she, her character was fitting into the femme fatale archetype while still being a real character. Yeah. Uh, the great thing that you have in all the dialogue scenes is when someone is like cuts to someone else, they deflect. Like in real life, if you don't want to talk about a thing, you're not just be like, well, it was a dark part of my past that I'm not proud of. <laughs> like he like when he's talking about his past, he's he he mentions like 
you know, what did you do in Chinatown? As little as possible. Mm-hmm. And the, the DA was fine with that. And he kind of deflects like, you know, how did you and Hollis, you know, meet? And it's like, uh, something that is very interesting is if their relationship existed today, uh, Evelyn and Hollis's relationship, it would just be an open marriage. I mean, yeah. Uh, I also didn't get in, like, I get the feeling that Hollis and Evelyn's relationship was not romantic. It was a business thing. Well, it was, it was to protect her from Evelyn's father. I mean, yeah, I just realized probably, yeah. That Hollis was, you know, obviously knew her most her life because they, you know, Hollis and Noah owned the the water company, L.A. Water and Power, mm-hmm. and gave it to the city. And, you know, Noah did not agree with that. He wants to, you know, chart the course and be the man that controls everything. And Hollis is like, it belongs to the people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, there's... you know, Hollis rescued Evelyn from what Noah was had done to her and protected her by marrying her yeah there's definitely a reason the real evelyn mulray didn't come to the come to gets giddy's office uh you know to ask him to investigate yeah clearly clearly uh jake is set up by noah cross originally totally yeah yep i i loved that like when you first when you first meet her or you know when you when you first when he when he first gets his task to to spy on hollis and he's like dealing with that and then he gets like that the other imposter coming in i don't know i loved like i loved the the way that they and we kind of alluded to this but i i, I want to like repeat that it how much i loved it was that how they they kept on going like oh here it is oh wait just kidding that's that's not it and you had to like relearn like all these new things that as the characters were learning it i thought like i fucking loved every every like little twist and turn and like little dip and dive that would that the story would take yeah i mean it's a a film that i feel when you watch it if you watch it multiple times you can get something new out of it each time yeah like a different facet of the story resonates with you or a different piece of information that is laid out for you becomes more apparent after the fact. Yeah. You're finding more Easter eggs or you would find more Easter eggs each time. Um, the great thing I, I like about uh, Jake Getty's character is he's a smart man. Like very clearly he figures out this, all this, but he's given clues and, but he's not as smart or as clever as he thinks he is. Right. <laughs> he's kind of just like an average guy, but with like with just uh, like a chip on her shoulder i guess yeah but he's he's clearly a very good private detective oh for uh, sure yeah uh and you know another point to his morals like when evelyn mulray in quotations first comes to him is like do you love your husband well yes it's like then forget this and walk out of here and let sleeping dogs lie like mm-hmm. that's probably a line to a degree but also like he's giving them the out he's like if you and again, that's a theme of the, every at every point in this movie, everyone has an out that they can walk away or be more honest with someone and the story will change entirely. But they don't because of mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z reason. Mm-hmm. It's almost like an itch that everyone needs to scratch. 
everyone needs to find that find out what's going on or yeah figure like out that's his character flaw is he has to know the truth and why he was used yeah and you know evelyn mulray's flaw is that she can't be truthful with him mm-hmm. noah's cross's flaw is that he has to he has to control the future yep and he be have him be the one in power i'm the one in power and in control here yeah so all right uh did you guys have anything else uh i feel like i had oh i had one more parallel to make and and i'm just gonna say it right now and if you guys want to discuss it that's fine if not I'm, i want it out there in the world it's creepy and a bit weird that roman polanski does a movie where it involving someone in power and older than older than them having sex and forcing themselves on a younger person. That's all I'm saying. It's implied that it wasn't cons- it wasn't non-consensual, but obviously at her age she couldn't have consented because she power position difference, I would say. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's now it's interesting in this movie it is not portrayed as something that should have happened like it's like that's terrible. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, it is and it's just it's just an interesting little parallel there that I didn't that I was actually pointed out to me afterwards by my roommate. Yeah, and then there's the there's the implication of what's going to happen to uh Evelyn's daughter yeah. now that she's in her grandfather's custody. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a bit... It's... You know what it is? Yeah. It's Chinatown. It's fucking Chinatown. <laughs> it is okay. Chinatown. All right. Uh, those are our thoughts on Chinatown. Uh, join us again after this break, and we'll talk about another L.A. crime movie, Heat. Welcome back. Heat is a 1995 movie written and directed by Michael Mann, starring Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, and John Voight. Writer and director Michael Mann is best known for Heat, as well as The Insider, The Last of the Mohicans, and Collateral. In the middle of Los Angeles, Lieutenant Vincent Hanna is about to encounter the trail of a career criminal, Neil McCauley. Hanna is drawn to McCauley because he's sharp, quick, and professional. They're two sides of the same coin, twins living in opposite worlds. With Hannah on his trail, Macaulay is prepared, as ever, to drop everything and leave. But then Macaulay hears the siren call of one last job. And man, the action is the juice. Mm. Oh boy, how many times have we all seen Heat? Uh, it's be my fifth time. Probably my third or fourth time. Probably fifth or sixth for me as well. Uh, this film just like... The fu- despite the fact that it's three hours long, boy, is it ever! <laughs> is it really? Yeah, it. I don't feel that ever watching it. Really? Yeah. Oh man, that was. It's always a very different experience for me. Like yeah. even, I mean, I still love it, and I watched it. Like I said, I think I've watched it four or five times, but it's. It always drags for me. That that like last like half an hour, I'm just like, all right, come the fuck on, here we go. Can we please end this shit? <laughs> wow. I know, I know. It's hard. I didn't know you true. hated good movie making. I do. I hate it. I can't. <laughs> I don't watch any good movies. Yeah, like you didn't even watch Heat. You were just playing the Division. 
No, I actually sit. I sat and watched it. Oh, oh, I see how it is. Yeah, that's how it is. Um, I think that the once the midway point of the 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 bank robbery happens, the big bank robbery, bank job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it has just it just picks up pace instantly, a lot more. The first half, and it's interesting, is because like the structure of the film. It's probably weeks to months between the events in the first half of the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. The, the back half of the film is over eight hours, period. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very interesting part in the, the dichotomy of this film because people remember, you know, the obviously the first the first armored car heist. Yep. Uh, they remember the the bank street shootout, mm-hmm. the point where it has been, you know homaged and uh, played out in other works and other similar things in terms of like, you know, cinematography and just story beats of other uh, works of entertainment. Mm -hmm. And then people remember the final confrontation at the airport. Yep. Yeah. But the interesting part is that, you know, you, you see these people that are making these connections or making these, these parallels between each other. And uh, despite the fact that they're in this city of millions, the city of Los Angeles, how isolated Vincent, Hannah and Neil McCauley are. Well, isolated in like isolated in, in themselves as a group or as in like, you don't, it's like, it's like no one, it's like, it's like they can like disappear into the crowd. Like, what do you mean isolated? As in, they are emotionally isolated from everything around them. Okay, I got you now. Yeah, and, they have like a kind of practiced self-isolation. Yeah, and Vincent Hanna—that is his method, and he's yep. and he defends that. Whereas Neil Macaulay, like he realizes that he's been missing out on something being so isolated. Yeah, but he he's got that rigid adherence to his. Like he's a man of his principles and repetitions. And those are what would have kept him out of jail because he's never going back. Mm-hmm. And he, he can't let go of them because if he does, then, then he's, he's dead. And uh, a great moment is if you actually count from when he first walks out of the hotel and sees Evie to when he walks away, it's 40 to 50 seconds when he himself says that he has to have the discipline to walk away from something in 30 seconds or less. Mm. Fun. That is, that is a cool detail. Um, yeah. For me going into this movie, I kind of recognize like after, after the first like armored car, armored car robbery, when the movie kind of, you know, slows down a bit, I was like, man, I'm, I'm not in the right mindset to watch Heat right now because it felt like a lot. So, turn the movie off. I'm like, okay, I'm going to just go do something else, come back to it. And that was, I think, definitely the right choice because, at least for me, like having to sit down to this two-hour, 50-minute movie is, is you got to be in the right mindset. Otherwise, it doesn't work for me. It's, sure. not, it's not something I can pick up like whenever. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely think Turn it is on. something that you have to dedicate the time to. However, yeah. I just don't feel that those three hours are a long three hours. I think that there it's a little less. There are some scenes you could trim here and there, mm-hmm. maybe some setups of a car pulling up to a place. 
but you can't really cut any scene because they're all important for these characters. It's true. Like, true. Um, yeah. you know, maybe the easiest scene to cut would be the one where Vincent Hanna goes and sees the body of the young hooker and it's a serial. And, you know, we already, we know it's Wayne grow. That's the one killing these girls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, we could probably cut the, you know, that scene of him seeing that, but it's like, then you lose the fact that like, he actually cares. Yeah. Like, and he talks about, he has to carry that in the next scene. He has to carry that angst with him. Mm-hmm. You have to see that scene of him, you know, comforting the mother of this young girl at the crime scene of her daughter's murder, because like, then you get him as a person. Yeah. You understand what he goes through and why he's dealing with like, that all those scenes of his wife being like, you're never there. You're always distant. Like I, I never have time with you. Like you understand like, okay, why is this happening? This is why. Cause and he like, cares about and, this shit and he sees it. And that argument he has with her when he goes back to her at the restaurant where like, you want me to tell you that some junky asshole put his baby in the microwave because it wouldn't yeah. stop crying. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, you're being a dick, <laughs> but it's like, you can understand why he feels the need to keep that from her. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The, the two things I had picked out, well, first I'll say this, there's, I would say it's nearly impossible to find fault in the execution of every scene in heat. Like true. Mm -hmm. The scenes are done so well, but there's, just a lot of it like Mm -hmm. De Niro and Pacino are obviously at the center of this movie so like for me the two I had kind of picked out and they're not like the be all end all definite answer but for me like maybe the storyline of Wayne Grow and the sex worker serial killings like could have been cut or the um the scenes with Breeden the replacement getaway driver like do we need all that build up into his past to just find him randomly at a diner and recruit him same day i think think i like that scene i i was like genuinely sad when he dies i'm like yeah and like he didn't think again the 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 movie is showing you the consequences of your actions and the choices that you make Mm -hmm. that you have all these choices in any given day and you can choose to take them or no and had he not been working a dead end you know line cook job where he was being taken advantage of by a corrupt system that yeah he paid his time but he wanted to go straight yeah. he he, he mm-hmm. owed it to his girl that like i want to be a better man for you so that you're proud of me yeah yeah and it, it does play into the into the theme that you brought up earlier where you know everyone has an opportunity at every moment to say no and walk away. And like in Breeden's case, like we literally watch him make this decision like in real time. Well, uh, you also have that scene after the failed uh, money exchange from the Van Zandt uh, bonds uh, thing where, or excuse me, when they find after the failed um, precious metals heist uh, Mm -hmm. where they walk away, um, they're talking about where'd we get this heat? We got to, you know, drop it now. Is the bank worth it? Like, we don't have money to put it up. It's like, I'll put it up for you. I, you got to ask, you know, is it worth it right now? It's like, yes, of course. Um, of course, Val Kilmer's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris uh, says yes, because he's yeah. a gambling addict. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he for him, the, the risks are worth it because he loves to gamble. 
Yes. Um, uh, Chirito, Michael Chirito, he's trying to talk him out. Like, like you got you got money put away. You got you know real estate investments. You're good. You have to do this for T bonds. <laughs> yeah, what are T bonds? I don't, I don't even know. I think no they're idea. treasury bonds. That would make sense. T bonds. Um, yep, treasury bonds. Nice. Uh, and then you know the thing that really surprises Chris because it the closest co- connection with uh, Neil is Chris. They did time together in the yard, and you know it sounds like they went away for a long stretch, and that's why they trust each other and why he cares about him the most. Um, is that. Uh, you know, he didn't tell anyone else that he was going to be cutting and running. This was going to be his last job, the precious metals or the bank job. Hmm. That he had enough money put away to front the money to, to, to buy the job. And then he was gone for good. The, the titular one last job before he retires. <laughs> yeah. So that scene right there is um, all of them are given the opportunity to say no and walk away and they live, you know, uh, for mm-hmm. all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't get caught and they don't they don't get taken down. No one dies for the most part <laughs> uh, and they get away free. But because that for all the, you know, for for Michael's, the action is the juice like. I don't care. I'm an action junkie. I love this shit. I love taking down scores. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's the reason he says yes. And because he says yes, you know, Chris says yes, because he had the gambling debts that he had to cover anyway. Mm-hmm. And because Chris says yes, uh, um, Danny Trejo's character says yes, because they all say yes. Neil says yes. Mm hmm. Yeah, Dan- Danny Trejo's character named Trejo. Trejo. That's yeah. right. He is named Trejo. <laughs> named Trejo. Yeah. Um, and um, I love that Tom Sizemore's character is action is the juice when he is definitely on drugs in this whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a kind of famous anecdote that gets passed around where uh, Robert De Niro helped uh, Tom Sizemore get off heroin. Like, I think in the filming of this movie helped him get sober. Oh, well, uh, look at me. I'm wrong. That's fucking cool, though. I mean, you're right in that probably for some of it, he may have been on drugs. <laughs> but maybe, yeah. But Throughout the filming, maybe got got clean, so. Do you know what he did to get him clean? Do you know Basically what took him and dropped him off at a rehab and told him, like, you're like a son to me. I don't want to see you like this. And, mm-hmm. you know, for Sizemore, like, he... Robert De Niro was someone he had watched like his movies growing up. And and it's like, I think he said like, Hey, like now I'm in this car next to this guy and he's telling me to like get myself straight. And that was what kind of pushed him over the edge. Do you think he made, do you think, do you think De Niro made that like eyebrows raise like pursed lips look at him? (laughs) I I don't think he has another look. (laughs) You're doing heroin. You're doing smack. (laughs) Like a son to me. Do not get attached to anything that you cannot drop in 30 seconds flat. (laughs) (laughs) That includes heroin. (laughs) Um, uh, Again, another point in this movie that's uh, the point is at that diner when they find out that Trejo is, you know, got heat on him and can't drive. 
they should just walk away from the job right there. They had lost yeah, their, yeah. their 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 number one guy, mm-hmm, the, the one man. that they trust. And again, they could have got they could have gotten away, and you know maybe sold the bail bonds to someone else and got that seven fifty k a piece and been good elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Or just wait on it, you know, lose the heat, kind of lie low, and then just wait on it. Yeah. So. Um, well, okay, so that that scene, um, the other scene in, in a in a diner slash coffee shop with when Lieutenant Hannah and Chris. Oh, you mean the scene? Yeah, yeah, and not Chris. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like fucking his name, Macaulay. Neil. Yeah, Macaulay. I fucking love that scene so much. So the interesting thing is, I've actually watched this movie, listening to the commentary track, and. Okay. Um, this cat and mouse between a detective and a bank robber is actually based on a real detective and bank robber from Boston, I believe. Huh. And the, the bank robber's name is actually Macaulay. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was Neil, but it's Macaulay. Okay. And um, what happened in real life was the detective was in a grocery store parking lot when he sees this bank robber he's been chasing. And it's like they both got like groceries in hand kind of thing or like one has groceries in hand. It's like, yeah, I could draw down on him right now and I might be able to get him. But there's so many people around. Like, how do I diffuse the situation? He goes, Mm. you want to grab a coffee around the corner? (laughs) And so Mm. he's like, yeah, sure. And they had coffee and just kind of talked a little bit. And uh, what Michael Mann says in the commentary is that it was at that point that like, through some of the the dialogue that he had with him, he realized that their next job is imminent and it's probably going to be these things that it might be one of these things. So he was able to narrow down his focus and catch him before the next bank job. Hmm. Interesting. And that's kind of parallel as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed in this movie, like, for all these diner scenes, like everything's just shot in LA. Like there's no sound stage. There's no special effects. Oh, there's yeah. no green screen. It's just like, I think it was something like 63 different locations they shot in. Yeah. Uh-huh. Everything was real. And like, even, even that like kind of cardboard town they go into with the like guys tearing down Porsches, you know, like that was an actual place. They didn't build that for the movie. Like, yeah. And it works. It works really, really well. I mean, there's always something to be said about like legit filming, like on location. Yeah, definitely. Like, if this movie had been one of those movies that's shot in like quote unquote L.A., but it's actually Vancouver because it's cheaper <laughs> or whatever, like, <laughs> right? It would have it would have been markedly different. Yeah, it would have lost its it would have lost its stuff. I think. I mean, this is definitely a movie that is all in a sense like a love letter to modern LA. Not like a love mm-hmm. letter, but like um, just a, it's just out there for it. It's like LA is as, this feels in a lot of ways as interconnected as the wire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That all mm-hmm. these actions ripple and have effects and like, you know, every, like everyone's moving in these circles, obviously, but like, Honestly, if this was turned into a serialized TV show where each season is like, you know, a different detective, like if this was a West Coast version of The Wire, it was called Heat, mm-hmm. I would watch it. Same. Yeah, same. I mean, with the knowledge that there was a TV show that this is based on. Well, it wasn't based on a TV show. It was a TV movie, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. You, 
could be right. I'm not sure. I know something appeared on TV that this is based on. TV movie, LA Takedown. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, definitely would work as as also as serialized, like you said, something similar to The Wire. Well, again, Fucking like Michael Rooker's in it. That's funny. <laughs> I think he plays the one of the leads. Yeah. But um, if you like. And that's what I love about this is like these characters are so much so very real as people. There's a lot of scenes where not a lot of dialogue is happening, but a lot is happening with a character like um, the dinner scene with Neil, Chris, Mike and um, Treo. And like, you know, Neil leaves, uh, you know, walks away a bit early because like he's kind of left out where all these people have these connections with each other. Yeah. And so like. He had a one night stand with Edie and he decides like, you know, I had a really nice time with her. I'm going to make a thing of it. I'm going to have an attachment. Yeah. He and breaks, he, he breaks his, his own rule. Well, he, he lies to himself at the diner scene thinking that he can drop her in 30 seconds. Yeah, true. But he obviously can't. Well, he can't. And it was the like the, like that's the most distraught he is in the entire film. Like, yeah. Okay, good. I, I've, I've closed all my loose ends. You know, I did what I could for my friends that are still alive. And, uh, you know, I, I made sure that piece of shit Wangro got it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm throwing off the tie and I'm, uh, I'm making a clean getaway. And then he looks and he sees that heat coming around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> and he looks back at her and he's like, he's slowly walking away. And there's so it's it. Honestly, that scene reminds me in a way of like Casablanca. Like if if you don't go and get on that plane, you're going to regret it. Yeah. Um, I will say the one thing with Edie and Neil's relationship is the age difference. Yeah. Mm. Bob Bob De Niro is like, what? 47? 40. Yeah. 52 in this. In 1995. Good looking 52 year old for sure. Oh, definitely. 100%. Yeah real silver fox hot dad energy oh, but definitely. amy brenneman is also 31 or 21 years his junior so how literally uh, could be her hot dad that scene in this movie the actress amy brenneman in 1995 would have been 31 31 that's so, not, not- it's not like horrible like 31's like that's a pretty like mature age it's like yeah like, like that's not know, the weirdest age gap. Like I, I get that that's a big gap, and it is a huge a, gap. Yeah, a huge gap. Yeah. So this one sent me down this rabbit hole of like looking at the age difference of the couples in this movie, oh. because I have nothing better to do with my time. <laughs> oh, why not? And uh, so here, here are some uh, some age differences. It turns out that uh, Robert De Niro and Amy Brenneman is not the most disparate couple in this movie. Okay. Oh, yeah. Danny Trejo and uh, Begonia yeah. Plaza yeah. are 22 years apart. Oh, one year older. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Trejo is 51 and his girlfriend was 29, or the actress that plays his girlfriend. Uh, these are all actor or actress ages. Uh, Val Kilmer nine years older than Ashley Judd. Okay. Al Pacino's 12 years older than Diane Venora. And the smallest age gap is Dennis Haysbert and Kim Staunton, <laughs> who are only two years apart. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking 
the State Farm guy. Yeah. Or President Palmer. Or President Palmer. <laughs> so this um, was the dark past he was talking about in the first season of The Wire. <laughs> yeah. Or excuse me, uh, the 24. Right, right. I know what you meant. Yeah, um, exactly. This is it. This is it. That he was gonna get that he was gonna get killed in the past. Well, he was obviously he didn't die, die like they said he died, but he went in wit pro and oh, turned right, his life right, around. Right. <laughs> yeah, got it. <laughs> um the best couple in this movie, of course, are William Fitchner and Henry Rollins, who are just a oh. character actor power couple. I love, I love i I mean, a better love story than any other movie ever, I think. those those two guys walk in a room like you know exactly who each of them are what they're doing here well one of them is you know waging his war nice (laughs) that's alluding to henry rollins being in a in a band yes the z band black flag yes Mm -hmm. But. Um, I I loved when I loved in near the end when 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 like the detectives are finally like unraveling a lot of things when fucking um uh, that stunt double takes down Henry Rollins that was fucking sick. I had never noticed it. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, I noticed it at the time I was watching it with Jack last night, and then I, I I brought it up, and then I saw your comment. It's like, damn. Yeah, really, really yeah. like again, like 1995 fucking movie works where like. Such an obvious stunt double is in the place of Al Pacino bursting into Henry Rollins' apartment. The other one, the other one that's really obvious is when Tom Sizemore's Michael Chiretto, um, Chiretto, uh is yeah. falls over in the fountain. It's oh. very clearly a guy with a wig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Or then I also brought up in the in the chat, like as I was watching, I was like, man, that fucking composite shot of. Uh, Bob De Niro and uh, Edie talking was just like oof. I don't know if it's composite actually. Yeah, I, it's I think, a something. It's a something. It doesn't no, look no, good either. What, I think what it is because I again I listen having listened to the commentary track okay. is just like the type of film they use just made it that flat and weird looking. Oh okay. Yeah. I have to say that they a... don't use composite shots in this film. Okay. Sure. It just looked really um, weird. To also, me. one of the things is they shot a lot of it with telephoto lenses, oh. which brings the characters like very close into the screen and tends to blur out the background a lot. So you get this like the phrasing I had heard it was described as like a dreamlike thing, where kind of the the background lights fade into those just like bright dots, and it looks a little dreamy and then you know you've got this this sharp disconnect between foreground and background so yeah it just to me it just looked like okay this is just bad cgi honestly like they couldn't (laughs) well it wouldn't have been in 95 that i know that's why that's what i knew so i was like okay something something something's wonky going here um i think that that is intentional to make it look like an ocean because there's yeah. a theme for both Neil and Vincent of looking out over the city or looking out over the thing and seeing, you know, what they want. Like mm. they're like constantly Vincent Hanna is in the element that he wants his life to be, which is the concrete ocean. He, yeah. he loves this. Like he needs that city to be alive. That's, that's mm. his juice in a mm-hmm. similar sense. Um, whereas Neil Macaulay He's, he looks at the ocean and he's longing for more. He's longing for something more. Um, this movie is actually heavily influenced when uh, Michael Mann was trying to give it, get it done. 
by a painting uh, by Alex Colville uh, called Pacific from 1967, which I will link it in the chat so you can see, because there is a direct uh, cinema cinematography homage in Neil's first scene. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Or Neil's I'll, first scene. I'll put the I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Cool. Yeah, you or if you follow us on Twitter, I'll I'll just post it there at Matchcut. Um, um. Yeah. So I I like that. I like I like that little tie in there. That's that's cool. So like you can I mean you can just look at this and you're like it leaves you thinking like you know what kind of life does this person lead you know what is it what is it worth what is it you know what does he do what do they you know this solitary figure with the the browning high power on the on the table mm-hmm. um, something that this movie is obviously known for now is the accuracy with which firearms are handled and used oh man mm-hmm. yeah this like I was gonna say. I was going to say this um, for later or like when, when we t- actually talk about the shootout, but like there are so many good gun porn situations in this with like them operating the fucking the stock like De Niro operates the uh, collapsible stock and extends it on the on the M4 car 15 commando. I don't know if you guys noticed that. No. Yeah, it, like when 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 the shootout first begins and he's moving into into like his first firing position behind that truck or station wagon or like Bronco or something, he like mm-hmm. he pops open because I think they probably had it tucked or like yeah, it was you know collapsed when he robbed the bank. Yeah, so then he pops it back out and then it's fully it's fully extended for the whole time. Because <laughs> Tom Sizemore is walking into that bank with a whole gun under his jacket. Exactly. Yeah. So it's definitely like tucked in. Hmm. Yeah, he's got the IMI Galil. That's mm-hmm. true, yeah. Yeah. This First also game. This also would have been a very different movie if they did not shoot that scene outside or, you know, yeah. so, record uh, the audio. Interesting in the thing way that they did. brought uh, that Michael Mann brought up is that shootout is so, you know, well known for the 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 impact of the gunshots being so loud and real yeah. because they were echoing when they shot it on location downtown LA the com- the uh, financial district uh, it was echoing back and forth and just created such an impact but they were originally going to ADR it because like you know that's just what you do and it just didn't sound right to them after after having done the live you know shooting and so they they found a way to remix it and use the actual live gunshots i think that yeah. made it just so much like that whole firefight is such a I mean, it's iconic in like cinema history, but yeah. it is such a good shootout. Like the way it's filmed, like the whole like the whole progression of it is just oh, it's perfect. The other thing that they did, you know, as a like a little behind the scenes, it just goes to show how much he wanted to do it right. Is um, the the gunshots that they were doing? What they did is they brought all those cars that they would have bullet hits in them out into the mm-hmm. desert and actually shot them up. Oh. And then what they did is they painted over the squibs that they that they uh, set up, and when the the shot the shoot would happen, they would you know blow the squibs in the order that they needed them to blow. Damn! No wonder why a lot of those bullet holes. Look, I was like, that looks like a like a legit exit, like exit yeah. hole for a bullet going through. Entry and exit because they are. 
Yeah. And so, yeah. like, again, the, the attention to doing it for real is something that cannot be understated. And it's a shame that he, even Michael Mann himself, has gone to more, um, more CG or, you know, post effects editing in his gun scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There is some of it in Public Enemies, which there's a problem with the the digital film or cameras he was using at the time are just not high enough quality, I feel. And like the film is overly dark in terms of actual photography. Right. Yeah. It's actually hard to follow what is going on at multiple points in the film. Um. <laughs> That that fucking scene with all the times where Pacino's firing the FN foul FNC, yeah. Um, like, didn't you? I remember Matt, you brought up one with me one time when we watched it together. That what he like trained shooting so that he would like he he wouldn't blink when he was when he was shooting or something like that, or maybe something uh, else yeah. I mean, they all went through firearms courses, which is something that really wasn't done. Right. In the 90s, they weren't sending all their actors through firearm courses, except for like Michael Mann, like would do sure. it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he like they all trained and I and it, it's been a while since I've talked, but it sounds like something I would say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 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 if you look at every time they, they do a close up of him, of him aiming his rifle as he's shooting, he doesn't blink. He doesn't like react to the flash or the shot. He like he's like fucking dead on the whole time. I will say the scene where um, Al Pacino shoots Tom Sizemore's character while he's holding the girl, mm-hmm. definitely huge flinch and blink in in that oh. shot. Okay. Which is fine. I mean, I'll you know, to, he's, to look he's still an actor at the end of the day. Sure. I didn't, I guess I didn't, I didn't catch it, but I just remember all the scenes as, you know, obviously. Are you confusing, are you confusing what I've, when I've talked about Arnold Schwarzenegger on the Terminator? No, no, I'm, I'm, I feel like I remember this. Okay. I'm, I remember someone. Maybe it wasn't you. It was someone telling me about this. Or I because you. I know for sure Arnold Schwarzenegger trained without ear pro, sh- shooting the Uzi so that he wouldn't blink because it's a robot. A robot wouldn't blink when shooting a gun. Right. No, I don't think it was. I don't think it was. I'm pretty sure it was about he. Maybe I read it like independently. And no one told me. Yeah. It was confusing. But anyways, um, I just thought like... Uh, like we talked about just... Val Kilmer's reload drill? Oh, <laughs> yes. You mean the one that they show for Braxton? That is a perfect uh, cover reload drill. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mag in, out, and ready to, ro- ready to roll and rock and <laughs> back into firing. Also perfect leapfrogging from those mm-hmm. guys. Perfect yep. leapfrogging. The bounding overwatch. Uh-huh. And good and good good spacing. Yeah. And it's it's like not it's it's not even just something that like is fun for us to gush about like it's definitely lends something undeniable to the film and um I read something um that when um Ben Affleck was doing research for the town mm-hmm. and he was talking to criminals and he was talking to FBI and he was talking to all these people like all of them brought up heat and it's just like you want an example of how stuff happens. That's how it happens. And, you know, it's a combination of like stuff you may not even like as a lay person, as someone who may not be as into guns or tactics as, as some of us, like it's something that just feels right. The way the sound just kind of feels right. And it's, if, 
if the sound wasn't right, if this movie wasn't shot in LA, if, you know, if, if the, if the bounding overwatch wasn't done correctly, like at some point, like you'd notice maybe not overtly, but subconsciously that like, Hey, something's a little off here. Yeah. Something feels, feels a little bit fake, a little bit Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Even though it is obviously fake, but yeah, the, the illusion's broken at that point. Um, something that's not really present in this film over much, uh, in speaking of sound design, is the soundtrack. There are oh. two standout songs that are both actually done by Moby. One is mm-hmm. a cover of Joy Division's uh, New Dawn Fades, which okay. is used in the freeway catching up to Neil Macaulay. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, right yeah. before the 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 diner scene, and it works. Yeah. It's like the perfect kind of like incidental LA. scene yeah and again yeah. going back to maybe this film is over long that scene could probably be trimmed down to just him catching up with him like we don't yeah. need to see the air unit in any of that <laughs> right but again yeah. the thing i like about it is them using the actual headsets in a helicopter and it being fucking loud and impossible uh-huh. to hear anything else <laughs> i mean again accuracy was like on point in this movie yeah yeah um and then the only other licensed song is Moby's God moving over the face of water, which is done at the end at the culmination of the, you know, the arc with, I told you I'm never going back. And then Neil right. just offers his hand for Vincent to take and hold as he bleeds out and dies. Yeah. And it's like that very human moment. Like these guys didn't hate each other. Mm-hmm. Both of them were doing a job and they did it well. And there, there wasn't malice or, or anger really directed at either of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and even there's even a respect between them, you know, especially in that diner scene where it's like, well, I'm not going to stop. It's like, I'm not going to stop either. It's like, mm-hmm. and it's like, Hey, I get that. Like the, like the, I'll be honest. Like if it, if it comes between you and me doing my job, like I'm putting you down. And then, like, De Niro answers back and says the same thing. Like, well, that that if that if that if that happens with me, I'm doing the same. So, yeah. So so it was written. So it shall be. Yeah. Sorry, there's a, a video. I definitely think you should link with uh, Tom Hiddleston doing heat heat impressions at <laughs> Robert De Niro uh, in, on the Graham Norton show. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Speaking of of the like cinema verite, like real feeling of this movie, another thing is in that diner scene. Uh, that was the scene itself was like o- almost not rehearsed mm. because Michael Mann has this philosophy of like, hey, I've seen stuff like get over rehearsed, and then you know you hit that hundred mark and, but you're hundred percent like what you want, but you're not filming it because it's a rehearsal. And then, you know, his, his perspective is like, you're never going to get that back again. You might as well do it on film. So you're saying, fuck it. We'll do it live is his style. More or less. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think he also does uh, a lot of uh, pre-production stuff with all of his actors where they have a very long, like, this is your character. This is what you're doing because something that was cut from this film was actually a subplot that Al Pacino and Michael Mann agreed upon and went into the character of Vincent uh, Hanna with is that he was a coke head. He had a coke addiction huh. hmm. to give him a, another flaw other than just being an absentee husband. Um, they cut it, uh, you know, obviously because they couldn't really fit it in. 
but there were certain scenes that Pacino still performs with that in mind, such as she had a great ass. (laughs) (laughs) That was like, that makes more sense in the context of, oh, he's a cokehead and he just did a line of coke some recently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I see it, also that's apparently like that. Uh, that was ad libbed and they didn't tell um, <laughs> uh, Hank Azaria what was going on. So his like completely dumbfounded, <laughs> what the hell is going on face is real. Yeah. <laughs> when I see it, it feels like real. That. And if it wasn't real, you'd notice. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the way, epic. <laughs> I will be lost too. That um uh also the whole time I didn't know that fucking Bubba Blue survived the Vietnam War. <laughs> it was fucking Sergeant Drucker, um uh Al Pacino's right hand man the whole time. Yeah. Well it was probably one of his brothers or cousins, actually. Oh, that kind of makes sense because he didn't speak with like that shrimp stew, shrimp and pork. Uh, um, also shout out to young natalie portman in a yeah. very very small but prompt but like impactful role um of 14 year old natalie port the the put upon uh step daughter of vincent hannah whose father is a total bastard yes <laughs> yeah um if i had if i had if i had to say one thing that takes away a little bit from this movie for me. Okay. One very small thing. Okay. It's the duffel bags they're carrying at the end of the bank robbery. Uh-huh. Uh, Twelve million dollars in one hundred dollar bills would weigh two hundred and sixty four pounds. If you divide that into three bags, they would be about eighty eight pounds each. Okay. Those mm-hmm. bags flop around like they're five pounds. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. So, That's I mean, better. obviously the actors were not going to be carrying around 88 pound bags. <laughs> yeah. Right. I totally understand why they did it and why, you know, they have to do it. But if we're going to praise the realism, I want to point out that one, that one small thing that gets me when I watch it. I get you. And man. I think that, that that even goes to further the point where it's like they had to make that compromise, but they didn't in so many other places. And it, yeah. and that stuff works super well when um, they yeah and i i think it's a, one of those things where like you don't really notice i didn't notice it like you bring that up now i'm like oh yeah you're right because everything else does feel right mm-hmm. so you don't you're not like looking you're not it's not like you're it's, you're not out of it and like looking for something to be wrong you're just like you're you're you're, you're engaged you're involved in the shootout like it, it all feels great and, and every, I love the... everything else that they didn't compromise on just like kind of covers over that stuff yeah totally um i was gonna say though on another part of the shootout if i can just throw some more admiration on it (laughs) like the way that the way that it's shot where you have like the the robbers pushing up against the like the the emplaced you know fucking jobber cops um and then like at the same time so they're worried about their front at the same time though though they're constantly having to pop back and the camera like pans back at you know at them aiming at you know um Hannah and Drucker, so Bubba and uh, Al Pacino's character. <laughs> um, so it's like, and I love it's like you are just like you're getting like that like that good pan over where it's like, oh shit, we have this frontal area to worry about, but also remember those people like push like pushing us from the back too. And I don't know, like the way that they shot it was just like so. Was I wouldn't so be seamless. surprised if when uh, 
Spielberg made Saving Private Ryan, he was taking some notes from Michael Mann in the way to shoot action because there is some uh, handy cam use. Not it's more steady cam use, um, mm-hmm. but it's like following with the action. Um, the thing I like about you know the shootout in general is how hectic it is. Like yeah, it's really hard to tell what's going on unless you've watched it a few times in terms of like coherence and that's purposeful. It's not incoherent to watch. It's just like confusing because a gunfight is confusing. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they do a good job of creating the confusion without doing like a born, a born series thing where you're just like Paul Greengrass intentionally shaking the camera. Shaky cam. Yeah. You like to the point where you're like, okay, what's going on? Okay. He threw a right punch, but now the, but now that guy's like down the stairs 20 feet away. Okay. What happened? Like how'd that happen? (laughs) So yeah. Uh, Paul Greengrass needs to get up his game and be a better director. (laughs) Big facts. I think we've gushed enough about uh, non-substantive stuff on Heat for long enough. <laughs> okay, fair. Um, yeah. I think one of the saddest scenes in the film is uh, it's a parallel. Two parallel scenes is when uh, Vincent and uh, his pretty soon to be third ex-wife mm. are at the hospital after Natalie Portman's character has attempted suicide, but mm. Vincent has stabilized her and got her to the hospital in time. Yeah. You know, he's like, I want to be, you know, I'm not going to go. I don't, I don't care about this call. It's more important to be with you. And the wife his soon to be ex-wife, uh, Justine tells him, no, go. It's okay. I got this. I'll be here. And he was really asking for permission to go off and do his thing. Mm-hmm. And to see him bounding down the stairs so quick with almost a look of just like, like, almost joy on his face after (laughs) such tragedy is just so heartbreaking. Yeah. It's like, because again, he had a choice and he chose, he chose wrong. He should have stayed at with his, you know, with his soon to be ex-wife and maybe they could have reconciled because it's important for him to be there. And that's all she cared about is making sure he's there. You know, she understood that she would have to share him with the the worst of the world, but not that she would be, you know, a uh, a passerby in their own life together. Mm-hmm. And a similar moment that you have with uh, Neil and Edie is right before he, as he's on the way to LAX, the charter uh, plane uh, terminal. He gets a call from Nate, played by John Voight, because of course John Voight's in this movie. Who isn't in this movie? <laughs> Um, yeah. Uh, John Voight tells him that, uh, hey, um, Wangro is uh, staying at this airport hotel under this name. You know, I didn't think it would matter, but it's you, so I had to tell you. Yeah. And then Neil says to himself, you're right, it doesn't matter. And then for a moment, he's in this really brightly lit tunnel. And it's like the score is almost like it's happy. It's kind of upbeat. And like Edie has this smile on her face. And then the second they leave the tunnel, the score changes and he quickly diverts because for a moment he could have let it go. Mm-hmm. But that moment passed. And now he's got to do what he has to do. He can't let things go. He's got to go find, he's got to go find Wangro. And he justifies it. It's like, yeah, we got plenty of time. It's at the airport anyway. So there's, there's, two moments where these men both have a chance to have that normal type life, ball games <laughs> and barbecues. <laughs> and they choose not to 
because their calling as their life is the only way they get meaning, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's their purpose. As, I think we've got like... stuff uh, <laughs> uh, along about this movie, though. So yeah. when we come back from the break, we will have our thoughts and summation about the two films. Welcome back. We're going to talk about our, uh, our, I don't know, final verdict, ultimate decision. Okay. The meat of the issue. Yeah. Ultimate verdict. Where are you guys landing on these two movies? Go ahead, everybody. You you two go first. Aaron. All right. So this, I think, is going to be one of those ones where it's like, if you ask me on a different day, my opinion probably changes because these are both fantastic movies. Yeah. But seeing Chinatown for the first time, versus seeing heat for you know the fifth sixth whatever time i like i this run through i enjoyed chinatown a lot more it was something new and fresh and also like the way the story moved was just right for where i was ask me next week i may have a different (laughs) opinion but well i think that's a that's i think that's a uh, definitely a fair cop for Chinatown is that, you know, the, the criticisms that you can level against heat is that it might be overlong and there are places that you can cut things out and not lose too much. Mm-hmm. You can't cut a single thing out of Chinatown and not lose something important to the overall story. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's not that like the story is fragile. It's just so well plotted that every scene adds to the, another scene down the line. There's a reason it gets regarded as, you know, one of the best screenplays in, in movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think though, that the reason that you prefer Chinatown more is because it was so fresh and because it is so good that it's like, Oh, clearly I can easily recommend this one. Whereas I've watched heat a few times and I've digested it already. Now I'm just looking at it with a slightly more critical eye than I had in the past. I mean, I would say I could easily recommend both of these movies. You know, this is another one where it's where it's just so hard to decide. Mm-hmm. And but yeah, definitely watching Chinatown for the first time influenced my decision. You know, it's not it's not an objective opinion. Uh, uh, I, I think, think that would be incredibly difficult to yeah. render. But yeah, yeah. No, no, obviously, we're not here for objective truth or opinion. It is obviously mm-hmm. an opinion podcast. Mm-hmm. I think my personal opinion comes down to watchability. Um, and as much as I love both films and I don't feel that heat uh, runs over long, uh, even though it is nearly three hours and it, but it, it requires you to sit down and watch a film. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like about it. It's not escapism in the sense of like movies now where you sit down and you're transported to another world, but there is kind of that hyper reality going on in some of the scenes um, where it's like, yeah, that's realistic, but it's almost like a, it's almost like a play on realism. That's like, like that, that uncanny Valley of realism where it's like, I, I, I acknowledge that all these things exist and have happened and probably do happen, but the way it's presented is like, uh, you brought up with the telephoto lens, the dreamlike state of some of these scenes that like these people are just kind of daydreaming through life and those scenes of visual violence are their real lives Mm. is what he's trying to go for but Mm. to me it comes down to watchability again and it is a lot easier to turn on chinatown 
than it is to turn on heat because you have to dedicate those three hours. And it's like, I'm not going to fall asleep to Chinatown or to (laughs) heat because halfway through the movie, an hour and a half in, it's going to be a loud ass gunfight. That's probably big ass gunfight. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, And so my personal recommendation would be Chinatown. However, something I wanted to bring up in this, you know, culmination summation is that both of these films have probably more accurate, um, parallels with two other films but they don't match up on imdb Mm -hmm. chinatown more accurately and thematically lines up with la confidential Mm. Mm -hmm. and heat more accurately lines up with the film that you brought up aaron the town yep both these films uh all four of those films chinatown is about la in the 1930s LA Confidential is about LA in the 19, late 1940s. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them are about corruptions at the highest level of power and a conspiracy to cover it up. Mm-hmm. Heat and The Town are both about bank robbers and the men chasing after them and the, the women that they, and the, the wreckage they leave in their wake. Yeah. I, I like that. I think that's a good like little comparison and like in a way it does kind of make it makes rating one or the other a bit a bit hard because they are two different movies and and it depends on where you're like what your mindset is that that day or like what what you're in the mood for because they're 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 both going to scratch a certain niche but they're not going to scratch the same niche right um i think there are probably better female there's better female character in chinatown than there is in heat yeah um, i agree with that but that being said, I think that, that Faye Dunaway's character is obviously a lot more nuanced in Chinatown. However, she is a little less of a, per, a full person. Like, you get the sense in the Heat that Edie and Justine and uh, Lauren all exist outside of, you know, they obviously exist outside of Neil and all that. They don't identify themselves with the, just uh, the, the men in their lives that that is part of it because they're in relationships with them to whatever degree it is. But, you know, they, they are people outside of it to a degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Kurt, you gotta, my verdict is my verdict is heat. Um, I think, I think for me, it comes down to in the same vein as, as what you said, Matt, it's watchability. Um, I, I, but for me, I would rather if I'm just chilling and I want to watch a movie and I want to watch a gunfight movie or like a crime movie, I I'm mean, probably going to put on let's heat. Let's be real, Kurt. When don't you want to watch a gunfight movie? <laughs> exactly. I was going to say for me, for me, that's always an itch that I want scratched. I always want a gunfight movie. I love, I love like, especially crime action. I'm always a sucker for that. Like I love the town. Speaking of the town, fucking great movie. Um, mm-hmm. Chinatown is a movie though that I would still recommend. It would just probably I might only watch it one time in my life. I might watch it one or, or two other times. Like again, I I think it's a great movie. It's a legendary, uh, you know, cast, screenplay, direction. Even though Plansky is a fucking horrible person, but like his direction was great on it. Um, I just don't see myself watching it again, honestly. Unless um, unless someone unless someone hasn't seen it and they want to watch it with me, I'll probably do it then. I think the problem with Chinatown, uh, not from like a problematic Polanski perspective, is that 
honestly, I feel its story is much darker. Yeah. It, whereas Heat feels like a study on the kind of people that live these lives and it's very matter of fact and in, in ways doesn't cast judgment on them. Mm-hmm. Um, however, Michael Mann did make Heat with Neil McCauley. He, he calls him multiple times in the, uh, the commentary a sociopath because he's sociopathic. Mm-hmm. He cares about nothing but himself and the people around him only in the immediate sense. No one else matters to him. Yeah. And so he talked about that in the gunfight where the the part of the the end where he escapes in the grocery store parking lot, he's just spraying bullets. I mean, it's a bit over the crowd and he's not really go aiming for things and it's just suppression, mm-hmm. but he's spraying into a crowd indiscriminately. Yeah. And like very clearly not a hero or not even an anti-hero. He yeah, is a just... he is a villain. <laughs> he's a bad guy. Yeah. However, I don't feel a moral repugnance from him like I do with Noah Cross. Yes. Where, like, he just, or that the the uh, sheriff of Ventura County that's, you know, the, the overweight, you know, out of shape, corrupt former cop. Mm-hmm. Um, like, again, like, the, the story is just darker in a sense of the subject matter it's dealing with is a lot worse. Yeah. Which I think is important to watch and important to like, cause like we've talked about, there's parallels that you can make even to today's society mm-hmm. um, with the conversations that they have or that, you know, that, that it forces you to have um, when thinking about Chinatown. But uh, yeah, I think, I think it's a movie that is a is a it's a recommendation. It should be held up in like you know legendary films in history, um, you know. But it's a it's a tough one to suggest or to just like pick up and watch if you're just chilling trying to watch a movie. Like, whereas Heat, I think, is a much more accessible movie. Uh, aside from the runtime, though, I mean that's aside that's from the runtime, but. Yeah. The funny thing about that runtime is that is that is that that that's more common, right? I mean, any more like, yeah. How I mean, how I many, think there has been no film in in the last few years that has been three hours, except maybe Endgame and Infinity War. I mean, Irishman's over three hours, but but that's being released digitally, and that's I don't know. I, I don't it did know. have a theater release, a limited theater release. I don't know. What I'm saying is times have changed and a two hour and some change movie. I don't think is that crazy to to sit down and do. I think it's long, but it's two hours and 50 minutes. It's not two hours and some change like Chinatown is two hours and like three minutes. Yeah, it's nearly it's 10 minutes off three hours. (laughs) Okay, fair. I, I also don't know that Heat is a like, hey, I want to sit down, chill, hang out, whatever, watch a movie. Let's watch Heat. Again, I think that goes back to Kurt being he can watch gunfight movies. <laughs> I can watch gunfight movies. Sure, yeah. sure. And, um, and then that's not that's not throwing shade at you, Kurt. It's just no, like, I know. I don't. I don't take it as shade either. I I know what I'm about. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. No, know, know thyself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I love a good deep. Compos- like uh you know a composition movie or I-, I can't think of the word right now like where it's like heavy dialogue and you have to like pay attention to all these like facets here i think that's cool but like yeah. you know that i i can always just fast forward to the gunfight and heat and thoroughly enjoy the whole time <laughs> <laughs>
Um, one thing I think that also both of these movies share is a good like attention to the ending. Like I had yeah. read that um, Michael Mann kind of decided on this ending first and then worked mm-hmm. backwards from there to build up to it. And I think like we talked about with Roman Polanski's decision to change the ending to Chinatown, like the ending to these two movies and they have their parallels in like main characters dying. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the ending in these two movies like make these two movies as well. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think if the, the endings were lesser in both these films that it would have not they wouldn't have lasted they wouldn't yeah. mm-hmm. as home as as well like i agree i think that's probably you know in a sense why the town probably isn't as well loved is because the book <laughs> the town is based on ben affleck's character dies yeah like it's a it's a culmination of a thing and as much as i do appreciate the ending of the town to sorry to spoil the town um <laughs> people that haven't seen it um, him getting away is good and thematically makes sense in the in the movie that he made, but it yeah it just doesn't stick with you and it doesn't Im- feel as impactful and doesn't have as much weight as the ending of Heat. Yeah, again goes back to my thing of like I want a movie that sticks with me for the next two hours where i'm like thinking about it and i you know stay stay in that world a little bit and just kind of mull it over sure and i I don't think it also would have hit as hard without the ending scores of either of them with the 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 reprise of the the theme from chinatown at the the end this is very Mm -hmm. somber jazz saxophone um Mm -hmm. and then the the use of moby's god moving over the face of water at the end of heat which is kind of like this triumphant thing as it kind of pulls back to this big panoramic shot in a telephoto lens of like vincent like realizing you know <laughs> i've slain this dragon now what kind of yeah <laughs> now what dragon do i do i chase now yeah i think i think i want to make it more clear that i do not hate chinatown Oh, I, I think, I think a, that was pretty clear. Okay, I, I fucking I I loved it. I thought it was a great. It was a fantastic movie. It's just, uh, it's, yeah, it's a real Sophie's choice. Like you, you got to cut one, and it's it's not. Yeah, it's not easy. I think for me, and I, because I know my love for gunfights and action movies, it's going to be heat. It's always going to be heat. It was always heat. It was always heat. Forget it, Kurt. It's heat. <laughs> um, although I do want to say, um, and this this goes out to anybody, um, don't watch. I think it might hurt you, the impact of Chinatown if you go from Chinatown and, and then immediately watch Heat like I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, with that, uh, that kind of wraps up our thoughts on these films. Yeah. Uh, you'll see us again next time when we talk about two different movies. Aaron, what are those movies? Hmm. That's an excellent question, Matt. Thank you for asking that question. That is excellent. <laughs> uh, we got we got some real bangers coming up for sure. Uh, yeah. uh-huh. oh. And they happen to be? <laughs> you like Noir? We'll get ready for Dick Tracy versus The Shadow. Ah, uh, if you have any thoughts uh, or want to hit us up, uh, you can uh, find us on uh, the uh, Twitter uh, at MatchCut or email us at MatchCutPod at gmail.com. Uh, until next time, I've been Matt. I've been Aaron. And I'm Kurt. 
And that's another one in the can. And have a good night. See you next time. <laughs>